Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Warn. The track, Entity and Form, this is coming off of the Condensing Flesh 7-inch. The pre-order's up right now at From Within Records. The full record is out September 1st. Now, we've had Carter, quite a few talks about uh, From Within Records, and I'll tell you, still to this day, Warn that dude has one of the hardest vocals. Uh, Warren from Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. And looks like they got some Sepultura kind of vibes going there. Aggressive, brutal, fast, heavy, loving it. Very cool shit coming out. And I love seeing uh, people like Carter who are still keeping things completely DIY, doing everything. Trying to make it happen. And if you want to support From Within, another way that you can do it is stop by the table. That's right. From Within Records will officially be representing at This Is Hardcore, which is just a few days away. Now, I know I'm dropping this on the Thursday, but, you know, I got a lot of shit going on. So, in lieu of holding back and dropping on the Friday, I thought, you know, maybe this will get people excited for the festival. And... With our distinguished elite level guest tonight, Anthony Civarelli of Gorilla Biscuits. I thought it'd be just a little bit cool to drop this early. So for those of you who are like, oh shit, it's out early. It's the reason why. Obviously, with This Is Hardcore, the weekend right now, I have to talk about it for a few. But I'm not going to prattle on because me and Civ have a really cool talk and uh, I don't want to... Get you fucking bored. So, simple, easy, and we'll keep this quick. Friday the show is at Underground Arts. The doors are at 5. First band soon after. As of now, the show is sold out. If you are in town and you're like, I don't have a fucking ticket, well, wait around till about 11 o'clock or so and drop down the Underground Arts long stairway. Bring five bucks and you can get into Sanctuary where we will be rocking out to some awesome goth night. <laughs> and uh big shout out to uh, Skeleton Lipstick. I don't want to put his, I know he's a professional, so I don't want to put his whole, put his whole um, government name out there. <laughs> but uh, shout out to him. He uh, clipped from the last week's episode, me discussing the goth night. Once again, Underground Arts presents Sanctuary, Goth Industrial, EBM, Dark Wave, Witch House, Funk, Post Punk. It's a This Is Hardcore After Party. It's going all night to 2 a.m. So if you're at the show, you can stay. If you want to show up later, it's five bucks to get in. It's going to be fucking all night dancing, rocking, hanging out, and getting ready for the real deal. Saturday and Sunday, both. Franklin Music Hall, formerly the Electric Factory. Doors are 12 o'clock. First band will be soon after each day. My suggestion to you, if you do not have your ticket to get early on Saturday, because you could probably still pick up some two-day passes Saturday morning, and hopefully there will still be some single days available, both Saturday and Sunday. With regard to people who have never been to the fest, we will have food trucks, so your food wants and needs will be fulfilled. We got some extra porta potties. We have tons of people bringing merch and different cool shit to spend your monies on. 
every single band is going to be represented there, so you'll be able to check out and rock out over over two fucking solid days. If you are worried that you know you're gonna bring your bag or whatever, don't worry. Chris X has got you. He's running bag check. We pay a couple, a little couple of scrout all, a little something, something, and then he's got your bag checked. Pretty simple, pretty fucking easy. Saturday night after Gorilla Biscuits destroys the fucking place. Bob Wilson, that motherfucking Bob. He's got the This Is Hardcore After Show, the Midnight Mosh, Simulacra, Dirty Dom, Bomb, X, all them guys, Delaware, hard shit. Simulacra, Live It Down, and Balmora. First band at midnight, 15 bucks. And then obviously Saturday, dude. Bane, Prayer for Cleansing, Vane, Beyond Repair, Gridiron, Magnitude, Wisdom and Chains, Undying, Speed, Bitter End. I mean, this, this, all these days are stacked. But I'm telling you, um, there's nothing like seeing Bane. There's nothing in the world. Seeing Beyond Repair's videos. From that indecision 30 year. Jesus Christ. Now imagine if that didn't have a fucking barricade. That's what it's going to look like at this hardcore. And there was another thing that also had a barricade out west last week. But that's how those west coast people have been rolling. But you should all know damn well by now that we ain't playing no fucking barricade games out here in Philadelphia. So. Made a couple little posts. I'm going to have some trinkets. Some fun little prizes. For those of you who think you got what it takes to earn a little medal. And we even got a couple little trophies for the Stave Dive Championships hosted at This Is Hardcore 2023. Now don't worry, you know, we got we got we're gonna have a good little vibe here. We're gonna have a lot of fun with it. And it's all in good fun, but you know, we have no barricade. So we want stage dives. And our guest tonight, Siv loves stage dives. And that Aaron Bedard and everybody in Bain the following night on that Sunday, they love a stage dive. So both nights, you're going to have to step your fucking game up. And maybe you'll go home with a medal. Maybe you'll go home with a little trophy. And we're going to announce some winners all over winners. And just today, the original guest of This Is Hardcore Podcast, Chris Wren of Bridge Nine writes to me and informs me that with his life and the business and his awesome record store that he owns now, that he is unable to attend This Is Hardcore. However, he said, B9 is down to give $25 gift certificates to each of the winners. So. <laughs> you can get a little trophy. You can get a little medal. And the winners will also get a $25 gift certificate to fucking Bridge Nine Records. So be ready. Stage Dive Championships 2023. At This Is Hardcore. The one fucking hardcore fest in this country. That does the stupid shit that the other ones don't want to do. We spend the time. We spend the money. We get the insurance. So you can jump off the fucking stage and have a great time the way hardcore is intended. Now, to our guest. Anthony Civarelli, not only, as I say in the podcast interview, has now played and headlined this hardcore the most amount of times. 
there's an argument to be made that he is the penultimate frontman in New York hardcore. And there's a lot of different ways we could wager and argue. But you tell me a band that's been going on and off since 1986, you know, where they dropped this record after a phenomenal self-titled 7-inch. And it's one of the highest-selling hardcore records of all time. And it's universally loved across the entire globe. Now, when I was growing up in hardcore, Gorilla Biscuits had already been put to rest. Wally was doing quicksand. And Siv had started doing just full-time tattooing. And then they did this band, Siv. And it would still be almost nine years later before those guys would get together and play a show at CBGB's. And then they would do the full reunion tour a week after or a week before. I can't remember. It might be a week before This Is Hardcore 2006, the first year. Since 2006, it's 17 years straight. Gorilla Biscuits comes, plays shows. Everybody fucking loves them. Just their activity in the last nine months. Just constantly playing cool shit. Not only playing cool shit, but determined to never play a venue that has a barricade. They just want to do real hardcore shit. Guided in part now with the help of John Scanlon. These guys have been tearing it up on these weekends. And if anything can show you that there's no school like the old school, it's Gorilla Biscuits. This conversation's awesome. He's one of my favorite people just to talk to about hardcore in general. And I hope that you enjoy this. So let's fucking go. This has been a long time coming. I can't tell you how many hours I spent talking on the phone with this gentleman. <laughs> and as uh, we are very close to This Is Hardcore, this is the reigning headlining champion of This Is Hardcore. Woo! Is that and- true? That is the truth is you are now with being the fourth time headlining. You are now the headlining champion of this is fucking hardcore. So welcome oh to the God. show, Anthony Civarelli, better known as Civ. Thank you so much for having me. And we- now I'm going to be expecting, I mean, at least sort of like an Olympic gold medal, maybe that says this is hardcore on it or something. That be possible. I, I, it's possible. No, <laughs> no, it is easily possible, actually. Oh, um, that's so good. I love to start things off for people who may be unaware of your background. And I'd love to hear about your childhood growing up and what you had around you that would eventually influence you to find this music. And then we'll kind of take it from there. Okay. Um, let me th- let me think. I was born in Jackson Heights, Queens. Well, East Elmhurst Hospital. And then I lived in Jackson Heights, Queens. I was born into the house I grew up in. A uh, little like row house on 77th street and 30th Avenue. And I lived across the street from a shopping center. So like, I guess I never found it weird, but people would come over and think it was weird where like our porch would, it's like a brick house with like uh, you know, like the driveway in the front. And you looked out onto the stores that supplied everything for the neighborhood. Like the shopping center was, like a rainbow shop, a laundromat, a liquor store, like a five and dime pet store. I'm trying to think like going order like a bakery, a restaurant, like a Chinese food place, a supermarket. 
and OTB, off-track betting for people who don't know about that, where people would go lose money and smoke cigarettes. And we had a stationary store, but it was kind of like the um, the nerve center of our neighborhood. There wasn't like a lot of stores around. It was just like a, you know, Queens neighborhood. So you got to kind of sit there and watch the world go by. Uh, at least we could always keep track of like friends and girls and, you know, anything that was going on. It was right in front of the house. So I guess that kind of shaped things a little bit uh, differently um, for me and my brother, because we were always like right there and people always knew we lived there. So if they were going anywhere, they'd come across the street. Um, but I guess I lived there until I was 18. But growing up, I went to a Catholic school started my brother was four years older than me so i kind of got into whatever he was into and he was cool when we were he was a teenager he was a rocker went to every concert possible had all we're talking like the uh we're talking like the the 70s rock stuff are we talking like the popular shit like like the the peter frampton shit no no like ozzy oh fuck um, he's a real rocker okay sabbath rush fuck yeah he saw Van Halen before their record came out and they opened up for Sabbath at the garden. Damn, he went dear. to, he went to everything and every, every fucking concert. And was he a record dude too, or just a, uh, just concert yeah. dude? Record awesome. dude, not like a collector, but definitely vinyl. He had a stereo in our room that I wasn't allowed to touch. So I would just have to listen to like what he, he had on, but you know, uh, early um, turned us on to like, Kiss and Van Halen was huge. Priest was huge. Just all rockers, all rock shit. And uh, you know, like the old the old Queens thing was, you know, either rock or disco. So that was our choice, and uh, we were rockers. But he would wear like a Jimi Hendrix bandana. He had like an orange afro until he went bald. So it was pretty rad. And uh, skin tight jeans and concert tees. And that's the the knife in the heart is he threw away all of his three-quarter sleeve rock tees. He just got fat and started driving the truck. And he was just like, I got off into the shit and he chucked them all. So as a a collector and a a hoarder and a vintage guy, that one one still stings. But he still has all his vinyl. He still has that kind of end of things. I mean, our room was completely covered. My, My dad was the kind of dad where he had our bedroom but when we were little he put wood paneling on it because he knew eventually it would be his den so he was like ready to like he hedged his bets for like 18 years that he would make it the way he wanted it and then eventually he wouldn't have to work on it again so we covered everything in rock posters and clippings and ticket stubs and Eventually, he let us paint our window. All you could see was like the window frames and the radiator. And he let us paint that black so we could have like black lights in the room for our black light posters. And we had like one that said like Peter Pot Pusher with a guy on a kilo of weed and shit like that. It was a good rock. It was a rock room. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, it was good. And, you know, like a brown, white and black shag carpet and just giant like heavy wood furniture like with, you know, a desk and like an encyclopedia kind of shelf on top, which we never fucking used. And, um, I, we, yeah, he's, he was there. He was in that room until he was like 18. And then I got my, and then turned into my own room for four years, but his, 
I guess this was actually how this was one of the turning points was when he was 16, I was 12 and I was doing what he was doing at 16. So I got into drinking and doing drugs at like 12 years old, tried to smoke cigarettes. I just didn't see the sense and I just could not do it. I tried. Uh, I remember sitting in Bobby's pizzeria with a couple of my friends and we were trying to smoke Marlboros and it was just like, this is absolutely disgusting. Makes no sense. I'd rather just smoke a fucking, you know, joint and be high at least. It doesn't taste this bad. So at least I never got to smoking cigarettes, but we, you know, we did our thing, me and my friends when we were younger, our older brothers hung together and we were, um, you know, the, the next generation of, you know, dirtbags bringing a radio to the park and playing handball, smoking weed and, uh, trying to, you know, fool around with girls. But I think by 16, I'd gotten in trouble a few times with it and just fucked up. And my dad was a very handsy kind of a guy. So the option for getting caught was always like, uh, you know, caught getting drugs or drinking was always to get fucked up. Like, so I was just over it and it was kind of stupid. And I started getting into new wave and punk. And what was your, what was the exposure point to get you there? Like, was it the radio from the new wave? No, it was, um, we, we basically started seeing new wave girls. Yeah. And that shit was like, okay. Um, you know, I was more of my neighborhood was like neighborhood girls. And then if you went down, I was on 77th street. If you went down to 85th street park, that's more like where all the Spanish guys and black guys hung out and Puerto Rican girls are there and Puerto Rican girls always got my attention. And I was good at handball. I broke graffiti. So I was cool in that scene. Like I could kind of satellite between. I always tried to be able to satellite wherever I was involved in. I tried to always just stay like neutral so I could hang out with everybody. And uh, it was always just more fun that way to just kind of cruise around and hang out with like your rocker friends, your neighborhood friends, your, you know, like more like a hip hop uh, friends. Because I had that time too. I had a little bit of like probably when I was like writing graffiti and stuff like 12, 13, 14, 15, that was, we were more into like rock, but also like hip hop. And, um, it wasn't, you know, we, it was just like, we were dirtbag rock dudes, but we had like a black shell toe Adidas with fat laces and like lumberjack jackets. You know, it wasn't not much really changed. It was, we were the act the same, did the same. We just listened to hip hop sometimes, but, uh, it was just because graffiti was fun and it was like an artistic outlet that costs really nothing. You just stole some spray paint and you got to do pieces and characters. So like that was and always, the neighborhood kind of knew you by that. Once you started really putting your name out there, just my, just my like friends, friends knew because yeah. that was the thing, the secret. And the, and we had on the shopping center wall across from my house was just this gigantic, like half a block long brick wall. That oh, was perfect. like, Three stories high. So I'd come out in the morning and my friends, you know, whoever got out the night before, we just blast some big piece on it. And it was just always so exciting to be like, motherfucker, like I was sleeping like 50 feet away and he was just doing this giant piece. I mean, all pretty shitty, but people would still get up. So it was cool. I I like to do it more on paddleball ball so I could take my time and not like have people driving by. But I had other friends who were just more into like bombing. They just want to get up like in a crazy spot. And it was, you know, it was just super fun. But that, um, the allure of like a few new wave girls in the neighborhood. And then we started traveling to, you know, go more into the city and just, 
we used to go to like this place BBQ and they didn't like card you and we'd get like an onion block and just like drink some crazy shit. You know, we'd order like uh, some something we saw on TV, you know, like a fancy drink or and we, you know, get fucked up and eat an onion block and walk around the village. And then when we got into, excuse me. Um, you too, like the poster started to change my room. Like it was more like, you know, you too and like Depeche Mode and stuff like that. And my friend Danny, I always credit my friend Danny Zick. He lived around the corner. We were friends since we were kids. And he started buying some punk records and he bought um, Victim in Pain. Did he get it from and the neighborhood or was this when you were going ma- down the, the, the city? Ma- no, he, I think he got it. We had a neighborhood record store on like uh, Northern Boulevard or Rose. I think it was Roosevelt Avenue. It was a little out of the way, but it was like he he just kind of like started to get into it from seeing punks in the village and stuff. And we um, and I got a I got a mixtape from somebody and it was I had one of those little because I couldn't touch my brother's stereo. So I had one of these little boom boxes that like the speakers uh, came out on wires. Yeah. And I was supposed to sell it like, oh, this is sick, like surround sound or something. So I thought that was fucking gangster. So I had that and I would just have cassette tapes. And I had this one and it had like DRI and like the exploited and it had some hardcore on it, but it had um, Motorhead on it. I never heard Motorhead before. And to me, that was like the best thing on the tape. I was like, it was like the clash was on it, but I was like, this fucking Ace of Spades song is sick. Like I was into that. But then Danny got um, a victim in pain and I went over his house and we sat on the bed and listened to it. And, you know, we just had it open and we were like, you know, it was like looking at aliens. We were like, what the fuck is this? Where is this? who are these guys? Why are they dressed like that? Like it was so beyond anything we'd seen before. So we just knew we had to figure it out and get into it. And I, uh, and then Anthony Kamenali, I, I actually, I was telling you before I, I, I wrote this book and in, in, uh, about the youth of today tour in 1987. And in the introduction, I kind of talk about the stuff I'm talking about now about how we got into it. And Anthony Kamenali was super instrumental, the singer for uh, Token Entry and Killing Time, um, and uh, Raw Deal. He was, uh, I never saw him before, and I was new wave slash punk and dressed, you know, like like an idiot. Like I had like a Tony Hawk kind of haircut, and I had a long blue navy vintage uh, dress coat on, and I was at the, at the Wallbaums at the shopping center. And Anthony was there and he was in front of me and he was going through his pockets, buying something, but he was looking for money and just lottery tickets just kept falling out of every pocket. And he had on a black leather jacket that had token entry on the back and the stranglers written at the waistband. And he was all in black, cow neck sweater, docks, like ox bloods on, soap spiked hair. And he just looked so fucking cool. And uh, he turned around and looked at me and he looked up and down. He went, I like classic Anthony maneuver. And he walked out of the store and I was just like, fuck. But <laughs> he, 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 I was, I was like crushed and in love all at the same time. And, uh, but he, I guess, and he was, at, he was from 92nd Street. So he came down 
um, a few nights later, a few weeks later, whatever it was in his car. And we were skating. Uh, we used to skate behind the, the shopping center. It was like a loading dock and we would skate over there. And uh, he came by in his car and he was just like, yo, you guys into fucking punk? What are you like, hardcore? And we were like, yeah, I guess so. And he started to school us and he started to hang around, take us places. And he was, it was the best. Drive us down to the city and just, you know, park and yell shit at, at people. Ask girl, like we'd be on St. Mark's and Anthony would ask him where St. Mark's was. Shit, dumb shit like that that would just crack us up. He was just super uh, funny and there was no shame in this game. He'd say anything to anybody. That's pretty much how he is now too. Yeah, he's just grown to a, a higher level of it at this point. Yeah, he just like, he would just, he would, people would walk down the street past us and he'd point at them and go, excuse me, you dropped your neck. And they'd look down and he'd go, all right. And they'd be like, what? Like, so most of them, they just keep walking. He'd be like, what the fuck does that mean? You dropped your neck. He's like, it makes them look down. And I was like, okay. Or he just, he had a lot of funny, stupid shit that he would do. He'd go to the, uh, a full service gas station and he'd pull out like a, you know, $2 and 85 cents and change. And he'd give it to the guy. It's any $2 and 85 cents. And the fucking guys are just looking. I'm like, Oh, but anything, anything for a laugh man, for Anthony was good. Now, the minute you find him and he starts getting you further into this, you just, do you turn your back on everything else? You're like, I, I got to get all the way in here. Like what are your thoughts oh, yeah. as, as you're getting exposed to all these different things, all hitting you at once. We were just like, this is it. We're going this way. Everybody involved, everybody that like hung with us. We were like, you got to take this ride. Like everybody's, we're going, we're going to figure this out. We're going to go down to CVs. And, and Danny's birthday one year, we didn't understand that. Like the mat, when the, you know, there's no fucking way to like check this shit. And so somebody told you. Um, so it was very private, very secret uh, society. And, um, Danny's birthday, we just went down to CB's and we're just like, we're fucking going. We're going to slam dance. We're going to do all this crazy shit. It's going to be like the fucking picture in the record. And we got there and the tables were up and there was a band called Wolf and Cookies playing. And there was like two or three like weird, like fake Mohawk black eye makeup with like spike bracelets on like these guys. They were like in the Navy and they had like blonde mustaches and like, you know, their hair spiked into Mohawks. And they were, and we were just like, yo, those guys try to slam us. We're going to fucking slam the shit out of those guys. And, and, you know, the band was just, was like, whatever it was punk. And, but they let us drink and um, we wound up, I think that was one of those things where we didn't know what had to order, but the waitress was like, I know you guys are like fucking 15. If you order drinks, I'll let you drink, you know, pay for your fucking drinks and you can stay. So we were like, fuck yeah. And um, I think I ordered, I was like, okay, what does my dad drink? So I was like, let me get a seven and seven. And then she came back, you know, she was just bringing up the bar tab. So like, you know, 10 minutes later, she was like, what, what are you drinking? And I was like, let me get a rum and Coke. And she's like, okay, rum and Coke. Then uh, they, she came back and I was like, fuck, I don't, what, what's another drink? What's another drink? And I remember Eddie Murphy ordering a white Russian. Oh, shit. Yeah, not not great choices, but uh, <laughs> I did it. And but we pre-gamed and we were into we weren't really into the taste of beer, so we were drinking wine coolers because they tasted good. 
And I think that night I drank like 14 or 15 wine coolers before we even got there. So we were fucked up. And we were hanging out behind this bank near the house. So we used to just have these big steps that we used to sit on. And then we took the train in and, you know, walked around. Then we went to CB's. So Danny was in the CB's historic bathroom, puking in that elevated toilet bowl, found him. And I held my shit together until um, I got to, I guess we were on Northern. We went to Arby's and um, I ordered like a, a roast beef sandwich or something. And, uh, Danny was throwing up out the cab. We took a cab home and he was throwing up out the window, but my window was open. So the puke was flying into the window and like hitting me in the face, like the window was pushing it. And I was just, just taking it. And then I went to bed. My dad was away. Uh, he was like hunting and I got home super late, snuck in, laid down. I had to get up and work at the laundromat in like two hours. It was probably, I probably got home like five in the morning. I laid down and then my mom woke me up to go to work across the street and I sat up and I moved my blanket and it had this like rust colored, you know, quilt or whatever. And I moved it and there was just a pile of, I was covered in puke and there's a pile of roast beef between my legs and my like tidy whities. I sat up, I don't remember doing it, but luckily I, I didn't die, but I sat up and threw up all over myself in my bed and then laid back down and went back to sleep. So I was probably one of the last times I, I ordered drinks, but it was, it was a good night and we got to go to CB's and then we, I think oh, another weird thing was we had this teen club. Um, they would do this teen club because all we would do was stand at the park or on the corner or whatever. So the church, the school would try to like set up this thing for us. And one night they were like, Oh, we have a special guest here. And he, about you know because they knew we were all like fuck ups and they were like uh he's um sober and he wants to talk about addiction he's going to do the speech or whatever and it wound up being john joseph's brother e oh shit and, yeah but we didn't know and you know we just knew there was this you know guy and he was talking to us about this and that and then he kind of rolled up on us with when we were all chilling with the girls and he was just like, Oh, what are you guys into? You like punk? And we were like, yeah. And he was just like, Oh yeah, my brother, my brother's in, plays in a band called the Chromax. He just, you know, just started in this band. Have you ever heard of him? And we were like, Nope. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Never heard of him. him. Yeah. <laughs> and we were just like, we didn't, you know, we didn't, we knew like nothing. And, and he was like, Oh yeah, they're, they're sick they're going to be huge. And we were like, okay, keep our ears peeled, you know? And then he was like, yeah, you guys should go down to CBS one day. And, and we were like, yeah, we did. And he said, like, oh, you got to go down on, on like a Sunday, I think. And we were like, all right. So we got a little bit more in than Anthony told us about it. And uh, first time we went down, we were walking, you know, down bleaker towards Bowery and you could see it three blocks away. And you just see all the fucking people standing in the street. Yeah, the whole line and everybody like swarmed around just, all them shows, right? Yeah, they just everyone. I mean, the shows were like whatever. It was just inside was like outside was the shit, and especially in the summer and the spring and the summer. So it was like you know, be twenty people deep on the sidewalk spilling out into the street, and it would cover you know like four storefronts. And we we got like a block away, and I was like, "What the fuck, man? I don't know, man." Like. It's this is this seems too too hairy. And um we got a little closer and 
the skinhead dude ran out of like through the crowd laughing into traffic and this girl came out with a half full 40 and threw it at him like you know as hard as she could and he ducked it and it crashed cars are going by and they're like in the street screaming and i was like yo the, the girls the girls are scarier than us like that girl you know and it was alexa and she had a fucking shaved head and a fucking guinea tion and boots and she threw up throwing fucking 40s at people and i was like i don't know if i'm made for this man we'll see so that day we hung back and then we when it thinned out people started going inside we walked across the street and just leaned against the wall and and we just i don't even think we went in that first day we met some other dudes that were like having heart attacks too like hey is this your first time here <laughs> like can i stand with you guys we were like yeah it's like just completely scared kids and then and then anthony brought us down to meet a bunch of people like at tompkins square park and we'd go down there and skate and you know hang out and it was just the best it was like once you did that you're like okay this is this is what i gotta do and then you'd see agnostic front play and murphy's law play and then like he's today in war zone and then you just be kind of it was just all your friends playing and then we got asked to play from um, Token Entry. They went on their summer 86 tour. And we were like there, the New York Hoods and us were like Token Entry is kind of like Queen's brother band, um, or like little brother band. Like Aaron used to help us out with stuff and we were friends with all those guys. And they like traveled across the US and played like a handful of shows. And Arthur was in the band. So he was playing with us. I don't know if he was playing with us yet, but he was, you know, we were went to high school together, me and Arthur. And um, they kind of called from California and they were like, we're booking a show at CB's with uh, JFA. JFA is headlining. We're going to be direct support. And then we want the New York hoods and you guys to open up. So that's can how we, we uh, got Can we drop that. back for, can we drop back for one second? Yeah. Ask whatever. I know Wally, I know Wally, how he got his start when you were linking up. Cause I mean, there's a couple of cool, really th- interesting little cultural tidbits. I love the idea that you discern the difference between just showing up at CB's on an off night and like how weird it was. I've read that in a lot of places. Like you go, yeah, you can go to CBGB's, but there really only was like those Sundays that really were like, yeah, the, the deep, the deep hardcore crowd was that Sunday matinee. And that was like That's the old. meeting place. Now, yeah. Were you, obviously you're a city kid, so, you know, depending on who's writing the, the, the verse at that time, you know, there was, there was war in every, all around. Was it really that fucking bad to go from the train that you had to take to CBs? Like, sometimes you hear these, like, mercenary stories, like, you don't know what it was like to go down to CBs. And it's like, was it like that for you? Or Well, we, no, I mean, I don't know, because it's hard because I grew grew up like that. Yeah, you're a city kid. Yeah, so, so I mean, I still I still feel like that. Like when I walk around anywhere, I expect anybody walking past me. And this is I mean, it doesn't bother me. It's just how I feel. Anybody walking towards me or past me is going to try to punch me. Yeah, like you like, want your distance. I get rob, rob me or I'm just like ready. I'm just expecting it. like I don't walk down the street looking up at the sky like la la la. I just am always like I don't even when I'm home, like my wife and my daughter will say, yo, take your shoes off. Like, I don't take my shoes off until I'm in bed. 
because I don't know, like I see dudes walking around and not like I used to like, you know, be like some kind of fucking sick street fighter. I just never knew what was going to happen because of growing up in Queens and, 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 and being on the Lower East Side in the West Village and stuff when we were younger. So it's like when I see dudes walking around in flip-flops or like Birkenstocks, I'm just like, what if somebody just runs up and like snuffs you and like, or you get like chased, like you're done, you're dead. You can't, you're going to be fighting barefoot. But going to CBs, we were always in a group of people and um we were used to having to either run or fight or or at least defend yourself on the train because when we were into hip-hop people would try to steal your sneakers and your jacket and your paint so yeah, you had nice shit they're taking it yeah that's the thing so i mean luckily we were pretty broke when we were kids and never really had nice stuff but i've definitely seen dudes get walking home in their socks you know there's a lot of yeah. dudes got jacked for this shit uh, j- chains watch people get their chains snatched people get robbed you know i mean always people would pull knives like nothing but it wasn't i think most people who wrote things about like that were more people from like long island or jersey and they had this and you know they were scared to walk through and they saw somebody get in a fight or like homeless dudes i mean the city was much i mean right now it's a little crazy but not bad like my neighborhood's still kind of crazy where i live but i'm just kind of used to it from like being kids but there was um you know if you saw somebody get in a fight on the street it wasn't like shocking it was just you know shit happened it's like at shows too it was like whatever nothing i don't know i think i'm just desensitized nothing really bothers me if someone's like shooting up in front of me or throwing up in front of me or fighting or fucking in front of me i just go cool like whatever i think that's why i always got along with both sides of uh everything like i i remember being um we did a sib show at this place in long island and um some of my some of my uh friends were there you know who were in a, a crew and my ex um they were like she's like oh i'm gonna go to the store and they were like, one guy was like, oh, I'll go with you. And then another guy, oh, I'll go with you. Like, and the fire, them like, oh, we'll go. And one of my other friends, like more of the normal friends, he was like, yo, you're going to let her go with them? And I was like, yeah, like they're the worst people within a hundred miles. Like she's completely protected. Like she's safe as a baby. Like they're, they're not going to bother her. You know what I mean? So it was, it was just like, I just always appreciated both sides of it more of the i don't know nerdy or uh, artistic or musical side of like the scene and then i always appreciated the savages and their role uh, for for keeping it um a little bit more wild so that, who was, that, who was that makes sense no it definitely makes sense i appreciate you kind of filling some of those blanks who was the first in the gb crew that you linked up with um me and Arthur, Arthur and I went to high school together. So you and, just ran into him and he, was he as Arthur as he was now, as he is then? Oh yeah. He awesome. was like, I, I think about it. I don't almost know how he survived high school, like crew cut bleach blonde sometimes, um, you know, new total, wave. Yeah. There was punk. a total new wave. The whole way it had to be. Yeah. And just skinny as he is now. And just, but he was, um, 
he was in like band. He played like guitar and bass. So like the, some of the like more dirtbag rocker kids appreciated him because he was a musician. And um, he lived in a story. I lived in Jackson Heights. And then Danny, my friend Danny and uh, Gus, we were into it. And a few other kids in the school were into it. And um, and then they and Walter moved from Ohio to Astoria and we were both, I guess, in senior year at different schools. And um, he became friends with Arthur from the neighborhood and music and, you know, punk and stuff like there, he was into like the replacements and Husker Du and um, like hardcore and punk and stuff. And um, they came to us, they came to Jackson Heights one night because we used to hang out with like, we had a crew of cute girls so like when we would go to Astoria, we'd be like, oh shit, there's new girls or different girls to be scared of or afraid to talk to. And they would come and hang out with us to talk to our girls that we were just, you know, friends with, nobody was dating. Um, and that's how me and Walter met. And we walked around one night. I'm not sure if he told if he told the story, but um, we walked around one night and we walked up to Northern Boulevard and there's a Burger King there. And we went there and ate. And it was really it's weird because it's kind of foreshadowing that years a few years later that was we lived in our first apartment together that was called the burger king house or the gb house we had an apartment around the corner and from my bedroom you can see you could hear them like ordering their their drive-through at burger king like at all hours of the night from my bedroom window so that's where gb started he we were hanging out all night and it's kind of funny the dynamic because he was you know very walter and I said something like I said, like a joke. And he was like, you're, oh my God, you're a dick. But we didn't talk to each other that way. Like, I didn't understand like that was like, you're a dick. haha. Like you're funny. And right away I was just like, what the fuck did you say? And like got in his face. He was like, what, what do you get mad about? You just call me a dick. And he's like, I didn't mean it. Like you're a dick. I meant to like, that's funny. And I'm just like, I did completely went over my head. I was just fucking pissed. Like I'm trying to like figure it out like standing there staring at him like you're so you're kidding i'm not a dick like explain this to me now it's like common that people say it to each other <clears throat> but my me and my friends you know the park friends we never called each other dicks like that so we were, i was like okay whatever and we got along good a lot of jokes a lot of uh you know shared sense of humor and he said hey, you know, I play guitar and I want to write some songs and I'm going to start a band. Like, you want to sing for my band? And this dude, Gus Penna, who's on the cover of a, yep. like, a, you know, I'm talking about, he, um, he chimed in over from behind us. He was like, I'll sing for your band. This is kind of classic Gus maneuver. <laughs> yeah. It's just, he's, he's the kind of guy that would try to like, you'd, you'd be dating a girl and he'd try to like walk her home and kiss her just to see if he can get what you got kind of a guy. And it would always, you know, he just was always that kind of a person. And, um, and I was, you know, I had no intentions of being in a band. I have no, no musical aspirations, never even thought maybe I could sing. Um, but I was annoyed that he tried to, you know, jump my ship. So I said, nobody asked you, dude, he asked me. And he was like, you don't want to sing. I want to sing in a band. I said, well, I, now I do. So I said, yes, I uh, accepted your offer. I'll accept your offer. I'll sing for your band. And that's how I became the singer for Girl Biscuits. Do you have any idea of what it would actually 
take to sing or was this kind of like i want to do this because i see all these bands like what was the inertia to be like, no i just wanted to it. do it to annoy gus because he wanted to do it and <laughs> it was just out of spite i didn't care at all um and i think that's kind of served like i was i remember being able to sing like you know journey songs in the shower because i could like sing high and i knew i could like maybe carry a tune but i didn't understand music or like what the job of a singer was or like you know the dynamics of it or anything and when i started like you know ernie and walter were kind of like hashing out like songs and we had this guy gm2 neighborhood guys guy joey scabaris played bass for us we were like a garage band and we would do cover songs like we got the beat and we do like um saturday night from the bay city rollers and um we did uh stepping stone um from the monkeys and my threat we covered it so we were doing that kind of stuff and i would like i didn't even understand i'd be singing and i'd stop i'd fucking lose my place and then i wouldn't even i didn't even understand that i had to like keep up and jump back in like where they were i just start singing again where i fucked up and then it was like hey man you gotta fucking you know we're still playing you gotta like jump in where we are and i was like oh god that makes complete sense now that you tell me but yeah like zero um musical uh you know understanding or aspirations and the weird thing is my dad never really talked about it ever until i don't think we had the conversation until i was probably in my 20s um i they would always say oh your father played saxophone but i thought he just you know filled around my dad actually went to the new york school of music for uh, sax he played sax and clarinet and he studied classical and jazz and i brought home this drum battle record um i was it was in my bag and i was over for like a family event and i pulled it out and he was like eating some like old like cold chinese food at my cousin's house and he was like oh what's that so i showed him he's like ah oh, sheen Cooper and um buddy rich i was always uh everybody loved buddy rich i was always gene Cooper man and I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, we never even had a record player in our house. There was, there was no music in our house. He just, after he like stopped playing, cause he, he broke his jaw riding a bike. He fell off his bike, he broke his jaw and he lost his lip. So he just quit and he was into girls and playing baseball. So he just forgot about music when he was like 16 or 17. And uh, his dad, you know, had a really, bought him a really, um, for the time, a very expensive sax and she sold it. Uh, once my dad stopped playing, you know, got the money back. So he was stoked. So everybody was happy. But um, yeah, he was like, yeah, I, I, I sat in with him one time. He came to an assembly at school and he played drums and he was doing bumps behind the drums. And yeah, you know, I played and I was like, no, I didn't. What the fuck? That's such a crazy that. revelation. Yeah, but it was like, it's very my dad because he just shut everything down. His like love of music, love of sports, like any aspirations. It was like, okay, now you drive a truck and you suffer. You have kids and you suffer and life sucks until you die. So that was in a, in a, in a, you know, backwards world that actually let me realize, fuck that. I'm having fun every day and I'm doing what I like and doing what I love. And I'm not ever doing that shit, you know? So it's been, uh, you know, hard in a way to be a self-employed, um, non-paycheck earning person. Um, 
but it's I, I find it it's worth it for the for the time you know i mean especially when you're in a hardcore band and you're singing you know songs about a lifestyle and, and doing certain things i think you have to you know walk the walk if you're going to talk the talk and i think we've kind of been able to do that where you're you know i i like when people lead by example and actions so i think if i'm going to go up on stage and tell people to do what they love and the money will come and, and, you know, treat every day like the last, which I, you know, redundantly do. Um, I think it helps if I, if I live that lifestyle or, and I mean it, you know, so my dad's shortcomings help that. Now looking into what we're going to talk about next, your lifestyle plays heavily into it. There's a time in New York hardcore, and I'd love to get your short perspective on it where The way it's been played out by other people's perspective is that one minute we got a New York hardcore scene and then these fucking guys from Connecticut show up and they're (laughs) and they're bringing the 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 word of straight edge and these guys just start slowly not only taking over and younger people coming, but do you ever see the the burgeoning youth of today thing as a separate scene from the New York hardcore scene that you described when you first found no. it. No. I hear that from a couple perspectives, like, well, they kind of wanted their own thing or it felt different. So I really liked your perspective on that. Like no, when they first started coming in the city. I was, I was in it at the same time. I mean, if you were in it like Vinny and Roger and Ray, Joe Joseph, Harley, um, in like, that uh jimmy i don't know if i said jimmy if you were in those bands and like for us the top dogs were af murphy's law chromas agnostic front um those were elite you know even leeway was kind of like a second tier of that um those were the bands and then youth of today came in on the tail of those guys but just before um gorilla biscuits sick of it all rest in pieces like more of the second wave of queens um and new york stuff but it didn't i didn't see that i just saw it as the next um you know like hardcore in those days generations were not 10 years or you know 15 years they were two years three years things were much faster um things change faster but time seemed longer and a year a lot of shit happened in a year a lot of shows a lot of changes so when youth of today came in they were they were you know they wanted to be um their own thing but they were taking um you know their cues from a lot of different bands you know and they were to to us and everybody else they were kind of the second wave of straight edge you know, there wasn't, they were like, it wasn't the uh, DYS, SSD, minor threat, you know, thing that came before them. So they were just the, and that's what I mean, it's just a few years and it was all of a sudden like the resurgence, the second coming. But those guys were into AF, they were into urban waste, they were into, um, you know, Reagan youth, everything. So they knew their, they knew their shit and they loved New York hardcore and they, that's why they moved you know, from Connecticut. I mean, Connecticut had a cool scene though at the Anthrax and they had a lot of cool bands, but those guys just wanted to be in the shit. They wanted to be in the mix of it, you know? And 
when Ray and Purcell moved to New York, they didn't, they didn't want to do anything but just live and breathe and be like on the Lower East Side. I mean, they were out and Richie, you know, Birkenhead was with them and, and then they just sort of like in their own fun, they made it to me, they made it a little lighter and more fun and accessible where they even, you know, Todd youth was walking around with a youth today shirt and rabies was putting X's on his hands and smoking dust and, at night. You know, it was, it was, it he was, was doing his best. He was, Ray was doing his was, best. Right? Ray was just living on both sides of the fence. He was just like, listen, man, I'm down with the straighted shit, but this, this, like, dust, is, this I, dust still got to get smoked. This dust is delicious. <laughs> and, and, and yeah. And you know what I mean? But that's what I mean. Like I never cared about that shit like i was never like you put x's on your hand you're not like come on man you know what Did i mean you, like, what was your what was your affirming moment like when um, it wasn't just when it wasn't just something that was around you when you were like when they claimed foot, it yeah like the claiming or when you were like everybody has a different way they would uh walk their way into it so i'd like to hear like when you kind of like, i was like when i first got into punk and hardcore i was still drinking and like you know I was into like, you know, wearing like fucking zebra creepers and combat boots and kicking in lights on cars with like dudes walking to the train. And like, we were like in suburb, like in the movie suburbia. And then um, I think when I started hanging out at like Tompkins Square Park every once in a while and Astoria more and the straightish thing started getting kind of big again and bands were claiming it and i saw and again this is mostly why i do things i found when i when i saw how people annoying people found it and aggravating and it was like you know when you can aggravate punks who are aggravating everyone else and you can be the person who bothers the people that are bothering everyone else that's always seemed fun to me so i thought it was i thought strange was cool because it was just you could, I always felt like I didn't need to get fucked up to just act crazy and do crazy shit with my friends. So, or, or, you know, uh, be the catalyst and like, or the devil on someone's shoulder telling them to, you know, do something crazy. So I, I, I kind of enjoyed that where it was just like, okay, this is just, you know, these guys, everyone's like, oh, these guys are a bunch of pussies or, you know, they don't do this or that. And, uh, I was just like, these guys are all actually fucking crazy. Like the guys I hang out with are, are I think generally nuts because they're doing all this stuff and they're not drunk. They're not high. They're not like under anything and they just take it on the chin uh, as it comes. So <clears throat> I thought it was cool. And there was a lot of like harder dudes, you know, like Mike Judge was hung yeah. out with us. He was straight edge. Like Tommy Carroll would beat the fucking brakes off of anybody at any at any time there was you know a couple summers where tommy was an unstoppable and he was he was with us and the and the crew and there and there was but that like the whole thing was connected like you know those dudes live with like the dudes from nausea and like um missing foundation and you know roger was connected to that and there wasn't such to me there wasn't a separation you know we would all go and do everything together like AF was the separate because they were the top tier, yeah. you know, and they were still kind of scary to me um, until I got to like know them. And same thing with the Chromax, like I wouldn't even look at Harley or John. It would just, 
you know what I mean? It would be like so fucking frightening because you just knew the stories and you knew them. And, and then when you got to meet them, it was, and you know them, it's like, oh, okay, this is fucking awesome. But that's the thing when people will say like, oh, you're, you know, oh, you guys are old school. And I'm like, no, not, not at all. Like we are not fucking OGs at all. We are the next, the next wave. You know what I mean? Like I know the OGs and they were there before me. And I always give those dudes the respect. They were the original seed. They started it. It was their thing. Of course, someone came before them in some way, but they were there years before me. So I just shut the fuck up and do what they tell me or you know, I follow their lead to a degree, or if it's they're leading themselves down or a certain way or saying something crazy, I'll be comfortable enough to say, hey, maybe, maybe we should say this instead, or maybe you should think about this. You know, I can I can maybe act accordingly in that role to help out uh those guys because we've had this, you know, bond and this trust and this love for each other for all these years. But um I'm I'm victim to to that where I just no matter what I will defend those dudes and whether it's explaining what they might have meant or 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 just defending them those guys are always going to be my guys you know. Now this leads into what we were talking about earlier and you brought up you not only are you going to be rocking this is hardcore but you are now a true dyed in the paint real author now because you're going to. Uh, Release you're gonna release this book, which you know I needed. I needed another, another, uh, another list, another moniker. Yeah, under your byline. Yes, uh, performer. Had, and now Arthur. Arthur. Water water skier. Oh shit. Um, cook. Yeah, uh, dog walker. Do it all. Ch- child raiser. Um, <laughs> uh, um, inflatable tube blower upper. That's like, that's down on the bottom of the list, but we're going to, yeah, I, you know, I had this, I put it, I self-published um, a tattoo book a few years ago and all it was, was, you know, I wrote a, a byline and put together a bunch of flash and I just wanted to try to make like an Ed Hardy style, like hardcover book. And I did that and it was cool. Self, self did it. And I'm yawning. I'm sorry. And, um, but then I, I, always wanted to actually I think I'm a pretty good storyteller so I wanted to actually sit down and write but you know you have this chip on your shoulder from like your education and your neighborhood and your accent and you just feel like I'm just this stupid guy kid from Queens so I um and then I was just like, eh, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll do it. But then you get busy. You have kids. You have work. You have mortgages. You have fucking car payments. You got shows. You got tours. Everything gets in the way. And you make a million excuses. Um, and, you know, you procrastinate and you push, put it, put it off. And then um, finally, I was just like, ah, eh, fuck, I really got to do this. And my wife was like, you really got to do this because she knows I'm like a hoarder and every once in a while I'll be looking for something in like one of my trunks. And she's just like, you have so much cool shit. Like you saved so much cool shit. And I talked to um, my friend Shane Inholm, who's a tattooer and he just put out a tattoo book um, on machines. Cause he's got a, like a photographic memory and he just did this cool book. And this hardcore kid from Germany, Patrick Ketzel, who has had, um fanzines he's had a record label he's got all this stuff he did the book he's been getting into publishing 
So I mentioned to Shane my idea. He mentioned it to Patrick. And um, within five minutes, I got a call. I want to do your book. Like, let's do it. So the concept is basically the first time I ever left New York, I was a roadie. Uh, for use to today in 1987 for their Break Down the Walls tour. And they took Mike Judge from Death Before the Sonner. They took Richie from Underdog. And they took Walter from Gorilla Biscuits. Instead of playing guitar, he's playing bass. So like I said, these guys were a charismatic, powerful bunch of dudes. And to take you know main players out of three bands um over summer was definitely ballsy but it just seemed normal like it was like okay we're all these pieces like fucking voltron and come together and we're going to make this mighty thing and we're going to go across the country and we're going to get after it and we're going to talk about straight edge and vegetarianism and uh just kind of spread new york hardcore and get into it not a lot of people were touring then and I think they just, I don't know if they just uh liked me or we hung out or they just took mercy on me because they were taking Walter for the summer and I wouldn't be doing anything uh, musically or band-wise. And they invited me to be a roadie. And I accepted. And when I went, somehow, I'm not even sure how, I had the forward thinking or the wherewithal to keep a journal and a daily account of everything that went on. And I brought a camera, a disc camera, which I don't even think they make anymore. It's like the cheapest camera you can get. And I took pictures of a lot of shit and I kept every, pulled every flyer off of every wall. That's so um, fucking cool. And, and stickers and pieces of paper and any ephemera that I could scavenge because I, you know, there was something in me that was like, okay, you just got handed a lottery ticket and, you know, like you won, like you're going to go you're going to leave New York and you're going to, you know, see the country and you're 18 and you're going to just do this with your friends and a van. And there's no real plan. And the crazy thing was I was, you know, kind of responsible, like the tour manager, Ray would always make the final decisions, but I had my book of phone numbers and addresses. There was no internet. There was no cell phones and we just had to fucking do it. And somehow I kept in this tiny van with seven people, I kept all this shit and um, brought it home and just squirreled it away. And I took the journal out and reread it a couple of times, started making notes. And then I just started writing, haven't fucking typed since you know school. <laughs> and and uh, but my type, my typing skills came back. And um would you know do a couple uh, like a day and then go back and edit it some days were you know like as interesting as when swimming today like the journal would say like when swimming at this guy's house and it was cool <laughs> and like that was it and then some days were three pages long of like fighting these nazis in phoenix and or working in a junkyard to uh, to pay for our broken van to get fixed and, you know, digging through uh, broken engines for parts and, you know, shit like that. But just, it was really just a, a survival. It's, it's basically like a story of like hardcore and like music, but just survival. No one had money. We would steal 
everything we ate from health food stores and or people's houses. I never realized how much people, how many people until I reread the journal and wrote it, how much cereal, milk and donuts we ate. Like, I don't know when that was, became a thing. I guess in 87, that was the thing where you just buy a box of donuts. I guess it was cheap and it was, uh, it tricked people into thinking they ate something. And, uh, that's what we survived on. Um, but yeah, so I got to, I got to write the book. I got to re, um, print all the photographs. Um, I got to, uh, do a bunch of detective work with Patrick and just find details. Like the fun part for me was like, you know, this is one story where we, we blow a tire over the Mississippi river and, I'm looking at the journal and I was like, okay, we're, you know, we're, we're leaving a, we're going to be, what bridge were we on when we were, I know we were over the Mississippi and then like, you know, now I can just fucking Google shit and, or put up, you know, same used to today, St. Vitus flyers. I have one of them. Is there any more? And then boop, boop, you know, and I'm like, okay, there's some more stuff that I didn't have. And getting pictures of like the bridge and knowing the name of the bridge and what town it was in. It was, it was just cool. I liked the, uh, I liked the research of it. And uh, I mean, it hasn't really taken that long. I think we've been working on it for like six months. Yeah. I remember you breaking, I remember you were talking about it and you were saying you're going to work on, it. I like that you actually went back to fill in those uh, gaps where your memory didn't serve well, or you didn't really pick up the information. Oh yeah. I think sometimes oh, yes. from some of them older some older, some of the older accounts you read the old tour diaries. Sometimes the misrepresentation of where you, are, you don't really get a good idea. I like that you went back and did that. Oh yeah, I tried to make it as detail heavy as possible because everybody that I only gave it to a few people like to edit or to read, like as I was doing it, and you know the great advice from like Patrick and a few other people were just like, dude, details, details. People want details. Absolutely. And we talk about, you know, I talk about like the t-shirts that i brought with me and like we have pictures of oh all, like, people are gonna go fucking nuts for them shirts and fucking yeah that's the thing it's like and i got i have pictures of ray sitting with these dudes at like um you know like in a bar where you just have a table with like the round top on it yeah it's him it's him sitting next to that with his arm around some dude taking a picture and i took a picture of them taking a picture and then it's the youth of today shirt is just um 87 right down the wall store is taped to the wall and it says seven dollars and i have a wishing well flyer wishing well records flyer that we would take with us and it was like they're you know what they were selling mail order catalog just piece of paper and i would use that to keep track of the merch and it was like i i had it i kept one piece of it and it was like seven seven shirts like three records or something like that was our sales for the night like that was pretty solid night and you know we just have all this stuff oh i have all this stuff and then um bj pappas um generously gave me legendary photographer legendary we're actually trying to um get bj to do finally do a book that will be like she's 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 overdue man she got so, it, like she kind of got covered years. up a little bit, man. But she's her her work's awesome. She's I'd love to get her on the podcast, man. Like seriously, she's fucking awesome. Oh, I she would I could I could totally hit her up. Like we tried. I talked to her about about doing the book with Patrick, and she's just so 
protective of her work, but it's like, okay, we can be protective or we can let someone else enjoy this when we're dead. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like when someone finds like uh, someone's house and they die in it and there's like, you know, 15 Picassos or like, um, like, like 10 Monet's in there and they just had them in their house. It's like, okay, you can die with this stuff or you can share this stuff, like, whether it's information, whether it's music, whether it's art, like it's, we do this stuff to put it out there and share with people. I, I think, or I want you know people to do that. I'm going to ask you a couple questions that are not related to the book. Cause I don't want you to give away too much information, but yeah. more in a hindsight perspective. And I know you got to get ready to get out of here it's okay. to, to someone like me, because I was seven years old in 1987. And well, that's, hard- just, that, that's just mean. Okay. Yeah, I'm just like like Actually, when that's I, not that bad. eleven years, that's not too bad. Yeah. When I when I find this stuff about hardcore, when I talk to friends, when I do my first US tour and I start talking, I love talking to the older like, what did you guys see? There are guys from Northern California, the guys from Second Coming, the guys who would start Powerhouse. This tour to people who don't understand what Anthony's talking about, this breakdown the wall walls tour for hardcore, for punk, for you know, for straight edge, especially. It's almost like the uh, the Johnny Apple seed. Yes. Everywhere this tour goes, seeds the ideas. It reaffirms people like a what hardcore punk and the value of it was, and straight edge and this band you did today. And I mean, you you lined up the perfect cast of characters yes. to make just for a legendary group. It's like almost a legendary group of dudes show up in a bunch of cities across this country. And drop a bomb that has never been felt at that time. It really did germinate and affect and a positive change in hardcore through the entire country. Yes. And did you see that in real time or did you have to look at that in the rear view and go, holy fuck, we did that? I felt it and I actually do kind of talk about it because it was almost like the warp tour. Um, it was it was the second time I felt it was with the Warp Tour, the first Warp Tour that we did in like '95. We were we were the first band on that. But Youth of Today would start started out from like New York, and then we play these weird fucking shows, and they were good, but the show wasn't good. Youth of Today was good. Then the next show, the next show, and people would travel, people would follow us. Um, you know, we drove, we drove because we saw you guys, you know, two days ago and we heard you were playing or you told us you were playing and people would start to like do that. But then by the time we got to like California, like the word was out, like a fucking machine is coming. And, you know, we weren't playing every day, but we were getting, we were getting thinner. We were getting poorer, but we were getting more powerful. And I say we, but it's them but I was there. So I throw my, my, myself in the mix, but I was just carrying stuff and dancing every night, but I was becoming a better dancer, but um, they were just, I, and you know, the thing I realized looking back on it is that what, what happened was five really good front men got in a band. So it wasn't like you had one front man in a band. You had five, literally five egotistical, like jockish or just ego driven guys who were able to run a show and now they were just doing it all together. So it wasn't like you had five musicians, you had five front men 
just who are just going to blow the fucking socks off of everybody watching. And this was, you know, something no one had seen before. And then the talking shit and the raps and the emotion behind it. And, you know, a lot of people were, you know, it was like what we had to deal with too, like early on the fuck you and the fingers and the bottles getting thrown or meat getting thrown at us and talking, you know, it still happens. People fucking flip me off when I'm talking about, I do a rap for cats and dogs or something, but it's like, I don't, you know, like you think that fucking care if someone, you think you, you think fuck you or boo or throw a bottle at us or spit at us or flip us off. Like, you think that affects me in any way or Ray in any way? Like you got to, you got to fucking shoot me for me to like notice like something like that. Like I don't give a fuck about any of that. And you did, and you did Ray. And that was in 87. Like, you know, we used to like refer to it as moving mountains, you know, we're trying to break down this idea, these ideas of, you know, hundred years of, of, of traditions and what people are taught and what they believe. And you're trying to like reshape everything that, um, you know, kids are you know, thinking or believing, but I mean, isn't that what punk was supposed to be about a nonconformist idea, you know, like of questioning everything. I mean, that's why, I mean, you know, I went to Catholic, I went to Catholic school. My, my uncle was a butcher. My dad's a hunter and I wind up being, you know, an atheist vegan. So it's like punk did that, you know, I didn't do that. And that's what punk rock's supposed to make you do, rethink everything and challenge, and challenge, you know, these norms, like these basic things. Norms are so easy to fall into. That's why they're fucking norms. They're, they're, they're a warm fucking blanket. Everyone else is doing it. Everyone else understands it. Your fucking TV shows, your eating habits, your drinking habits, your, you know, cheating on your wife and high-fiving your friends about it or cheating on your husband and talking to your girls about it. all these things that people do that are just completely normal. These are all things that, you know, we were just trying to stand against and just make, make people, you know, like the fucking songs, you know, like can't close my eyes, wake up and live and all that kind of shit. You know, it was, it was real. These dudes were living it and they're fired up about it. So I think once we started to one time we got back, completely changed the country and i feel like the same thing happened for us with like the warp tour we were like this is gonna suck we're playing punk rock in the middle of the afternoon with fucking skateboarders and inline skaters like how fucking weak is that and i'm gonna be in like the middle of a desert standing on a flatbed truck but by the time we got to california the shows you know were 10 times as big as when we started because people heard it was fucking awesome and that's the way things grow by just people, you know, doing it and making it awesome. You can't go into any of this half-assed. You can't go into any of this questioning who you are or what you're doing. You have to be a hundred percent in. You got to be that fucking dude who's handling a cobra. He's a hundred percent that he's not going to get bit and, you know, projecting it. And, and that idea of saying things and putting it into the universe and it will, you know, you can manifest it. I think that was, we didn't know what it was then, but that's what we were doing. We were trying to manifest this scene, uh, our part of the scene. And I don't know, for better or worse, it, it, it worked. Now I got one last question because I know you got to wrap up soon. It's all good. For the time that you've put in the heart or for all the things that you've done, seen, been through, what makes you still get up 
and want to do these kind of sets like at a place like this hardcore or these concert weekends that you guys have been banging through throughout the entire winter through the spring like what's the inertia to keep moving you forward and getting up and not doing it in like kind of a um you know hand out for the money you know like the the like half-assing it not even half-assing it but just you know hey i'm here just because it's something to do like i know oh, you i know you yeah. as a friend i know you as a performer and i know that you give a fuck about every person in that room i know that every set i you've played for us every set i've seen you play you still give a fuck about every little bit of it and yes. i wonder what what you're drawing from to still do that after all this time i wonder too it's like i think there's um I think there is a set there. I must have some sort of arrested development um, uh, in my maturity level because I don't think I, I don't feel any different than I did when I was, you know, 18 or 25 mentally. I still believe the same shit and that could just be, you know, cause I'm stupid, but there's also the idea that there's a few things like the idea that hardcore it had rules. It isn't just whatever you want to say it is. To me, hardcore had rules. And that was told to me by, you know, the the uh, upper statesman. And it was a way you conduct yourself and a way you play and the things, you know, we believe. And for me, I get the energy now from being able to being in this great place where you know we can dictate terms that we can never dictate when we were younger you know we would play the anthrax would be sold out they'd be like oh it wasn't a good turnout here's you know 250 dollars or 200 dollars and we were stoked but we we're also like bullshit it was sold out but you know we were like 16 17 18 years old so some dude was just taking advantage of us and that's just coming up but now it's like okay this is how many people are here. This is how much ticket sales are. This is what the bands should be getting paid. If you're cool with that, cool. Oh, you want to have security? I don't want security. Okay, you want security? Cool, I don't have to play your show. You want a barricade? Cool, fuck you. I'll just go find somewhere else. You know, I mean, it got to the point where I would can't want you know try to cancel shows if they tried to put up a barricade. It just happened. It just happened to me a few weeks ago. And I just, instead of getting mad, I just made some phone calls and then, you know, it got, it got struck, but there, this is not something that needs to be controlled or tried to be controlled. That's why, you know, we played the play, the shows we play. I mean, I got need in the fucking head the other night in Santa Cruz. So bad that I had a concussion. I got nauseous. I was dizzy. Had to like sit down for a while and pour water on my head. And it's like, you know, you do it to yourself, but I can't expect these kids or these fucking, well, I don't know if they're 15 or 50 to have a good time. If we're not giving them the same show that we were raised on, I want you to go to a GB show and feel the way I felt seeing agnostic front or Murphy's law or the Chromags, you know, our CB's matinee. That's what ruined me. And that's, I want to ruin you for a lame show. I want you to go to some fucking show in California or Vegas when they have you in a giant, shining steel pen barricade 50 feet from the band 
and they tell you it's punk. That's not, that's not for me. So I don't, I don't give a fuck what, you know, your, your safety concerns are, or your insurance says, that's not my business. That's your business. My business, my job is to put on a fucking hardcore show with people who want to put on a hardcore show. And if shit goes wrong, we deal with it. But I, you know, it's been this many shows, I don't know, fucking thousand shows in my life. And, you know, I'm still fucking alive and everybody's still got all their fingers and toes. So it can't be that fucking dangerous, you know? And it's always much more fun when you're not trying to control something that shouldn't be controlled. And, you know, it's, it, that's what does it for me and talking shit. You know, I love that people love the songs and I love that we've become like a band that, you know, this is what people have mentioned to me that like when you get into hardcore, there's a certain amount of records you need to know to know your the, the genre and we're one of those. And that's to be even thrown into a list of, uh, you know, bands like that is, you know, we never thought that when we were 16 and 17 that we would be a band that eventually would be mentioned with you know, seven seconds or minor thread or the chrome mags or agnostic front. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's mind blowing to us. I mean, at least for me, I never thought that way. I just was happy to be there, lucky to be there. And I think I also, you know, for me, it's also doing stuff with like guys like you who do it, you know, DIY style. And somehow it's like the field, the dreams concept, you know, build it and they will come. I just played tied down fest in Detroit, you know, in a fucking, burned out old you know factory and there was 2500 kids there two days well kids people there in, in two days in a row in this massive complex in the middle of fucking detroit like that's amazing to me there's such a great resurgence of parkour right now and all these young bands and if you asked me five years ago or six years ago if this if i'd be fired up about playing shows as I am now, I'd probably be like, nah, I'll probably be done by then. But playing, there's so many bands, like high school age bands, 20 something year old bands, girl led bands. Like, and it, you know, hardcore used to just be all white dudes. You know what I mean? Now there's, you know, Colombian bands. Um, there's full, full black bands. There's um, black led singers, girl led bands. It's, it's, it's just so, so much different. You guys planted the seeds, man. That's really what it comes down to is. Like, that's the thing. I just feel like maybe we watered <laughs> it. You know, we watered it. We we, we put some, we put down some uh, manure and watered. I can't take credit for any anything. All I can take credit for is trying to keep it legit. You know what I mean? Not yeah. let people get away with it. I remember being in California and this dude was, we were playing this amusing um, festival. And, you know, Travis is, is my boy and he's like, you know, not, he's not going to be like out there pushing the barricade over, but he's like doing his best from his end. And then he's got people that work for him and he's, you know, a few other people and the people, one guy just goes to me, who cares, who cares, who cares? Like it's, we got all these tickets sold. Everybody's here. Who cares? And I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna punch this guy in the face. Like, I care. Me. I don't give a fuck if anybody else cares. I care. Like, that's why we're having this argument. That's why I'm standing here when I'm supposed to be doing other shit, 
and I'm fucking making phone calls and, and fighting with five people because I care and you, and I don't like being fucking lied to, you know, it's like, you tell me one thing, I agree to it. Cool. I mean, that's all it really is, man. It's just keeping it honest. And, um, there's obviously ego involved, you know, and like, we just played these shows in California. We got to see all our old sloth crew friends and they came with us the whole time. And we like, drove in a Winnebago like with 10 dudes actually probably more probably like 12 guys in a Winnebago in a trailer like dudes were making four-hour drives standing in like the in the steps like at the door hanging out like they couldn't even all sit down like laying in the bed that's in the back together and then like jumping off bridges and going swimming in these weird aquifers and just walking around shirtless like we're fucking 16 you know and you can still pull it off and you can still, you know, have fun and just going out to eat and just, I don't know. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to give up. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to, it's again, it's back to the norms. Like, Oh, I'm, I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50. I gotta, I gotta suck. You know, my knee hurts. I, and my jaw, I hate my fucking wife. I hate my kids. I hate my job. It's like all those cliches, like they don't really have to have to happen to you. You just got to fucking plan ahead and know that if you don't do something, then your life could suck, but you can, you know, you can design things and you can make things happen. And you can change things. I'm being so fucking positive right now. It's making me sick, but you know what I'm saying? I'm having like a one life, one chance moment. <laughs> <laughs> I love you put that in there. Well, listen, brother, we're going to be rocking together at this is hardcore. Fuck yeah. I can't wait. I, I sincerely tell everybody because they're like, oh, Gorilla Biscuits. And I'm like, there's never been, to my experience, a band from the hardcore scene that just carries on the legacy so perfectly. Well, thank and, you. I appreciate that. And, and that's, and that's honestly, it's not as a kids with young kids would say, there's no cap there. This is like the legit thing. Yeah. You guys get up there with the intention of giving the kids in the crowd, the best possible Gorilla Biscuit set at at the point of, you know, ensuring everybody's awesome times with the stage diving and no barricades. Yeah. Um, the banter between the band, the, the way that you guys still do little audibles and change up in the covers. It, it For a band with the legacy you guys have, it is incredible to see. And, and as the tie down videos were fucking insane. It's amazing to see the legacy continue and it continually be supported. And I'm just happy that we're able to bring it back. We're going to have a lot of fun on that fucking stage. And I know, oh, yeah. and I know you're going to leave everything that you have out there for the kids. And that means the fucking world to people that travel from all over. And um, yeah, we're, we're, we're really happy to have you back. And I look forward to after this book comes out and when you have some free time, we'll go over, we'll go, we'll delve into the book. We'll go more into, you know, when when you get back from the tour and, and you drop the self-titled and the, the records, that's so many people want to hear these kind of stories from you. Oh yeah. And I mean, I, we'll, we'll get so, we'll get you so we'll get you we'll get you on another episode. We just wanted to pop you on here. Just thank you for your time. Thank you Anytime. for being a friend. I uh someone was like, Well, how long do you think you're gonna talk? I said, Well, one time he and I talked for like three and a half hours. So I think this <laughs> gonna, this could go we, four hours or an hour and a half. We, I don't know how we long weren't you, we weren't even recording. We could talk no, not at hours. all. It was just hanging. Yeah. No, so. you're, it's it's my pleasure. I'm sorry it took so long to do it. I just, you know, 
sometimes I just feel like I don't really have anything interesting to talk about and people know everything that I think or happen, but you make a good point. There's a lot of stories that they don't know. And it's always fun to tell stories, but yeah, we can chop it up about, you know, GB years afterwards, post in the middle, civ stuff like now back yeah. in 2006, I got, you know, it's all, it's all relevant we'll, to we'll, somebody. We'll delve, we'll delve a lot deeper, but I, I, especially with the book coming out, I think it was important to press upon people to check it out because this is a watershed moment for hardcore and to have your play-by-play documented and and, Patso, and from Patrick Kitzel, he puts out some awesome work. He does. He, he, he really puts his ass into the product. I've seen the tattoo stuff he puts out. He did a awesome book on Big Frank and his yep. record label. Big Frank's a guy I love to get on. Me and him have gone back and forth. We've had scheduled. We had a pullback. Nemesis, back. right? Yeah. Yeah, Nemesis Records and, and the entire story of Big Frank. Um, I love dudes that put out books. I, I wish there was more books on hardcore. And so every time a book comes out, I buy it. I'm, I fucking have a book. Well, we're going to we're gonna get into it now because we're going to do – we did this one and like you're saying about Patrick, he's, he was like, you know, the first like layout run through, I was like, Oh no, that ain't, no, that ain't it. And he was just like, Oh yeah, I don't give a fuck. Like I'll do this a hundred times. I don't care. He's like, you have to be happy. I want to be happy. He's like, tell me what to do and we'll do it. Cause you know, I'm a, I work visually. So for me, it was, like, all right, I'm not like a computer guy, so I'm not going to, you know, be doing this. I need you to do it. But we would FaceTime and and edit the book together just so that just to save time and like energy. So we would spend mornings before I'd go to work, just FaceTiming and editing the book together, like just for the visuals and like the blocking out of stuff. So Patrick definitely put his time in. And then we actually had um, uh, this is I know we're 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 we're, cancel- we're, sh- we're shutting off in a second, but we actually went. This is not me at all. I met this guy in L.A. who does does did this Beastie Boys retrospective of all their like um, lyrics and photographs and gear and stuff in um, this place in um, in in L.A. It was it's was up for a while. It was like a museum kind of a curated event. And I met him. His name is Roger Gassman. He does Beyond the Streets. And I just took a shot and I contacted him and I told him what I was doing. And I was like, would you mind just because I thought his aesthetic um, was so good and the way he lays things out was so smart. So I just reached out and I said, hey, would you mind? Wait, why you were sleeping, Roger? Uh, Roger Gassman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, He did an amazing graffiti yeah, pop scene did, in the nineties. Yeah, I, I, I did said a, the name and I'm like, I, wait, what? Yeah, I did a I did an interview for a while you're while you were sleeping. I didn't realize it was the same guy. You just you just gave me some info. But he so yeah, I hit him up. I said, Would you mind putting a, a fresh set of eyes on this? And um yeah, sent them everything. And he that motherfucker edited every you know word and every idea. And, you know, like got my back with stuff like maybe don't say this because it's, you know, a time where people are trying to, you know, hang people for for saying things. So maybe think of another way to say it or you need more information here. Who is this guy? I know who he is, but nobody else does. Like you want to reach a wider audience, you know, like really helped. 
and the, for me to ask for help is is uh, someone I don't know is unlike me. So that was a a growing kind of experience for me where I and I got to like uh, work with somebody on a small level from like uh, you know what I consider like a peer group, and it was and it was interesting and it was fucking cool. But the other thing is after if this does good and it's cool and it's well received, I have my 89 tour journal from Gorilla Biscuits doing the US tour and I have my 91 Europe first time in Europe 80 I'm sorry 89 Europe um when we just played squats with and had squatter uh, roadies and the whole thing so there could be some more hardcore stories coming out awesome brother well listen thanks for having me on man and I'm psyched to uh, see you in great lineup by the way another unbelievable lineup for Dude, uh, the whole thing. the aesthetic of silent majority rolling in the GB yes. in itself is fucking legendary. And then, you know, it, it, it's, it's a heart. And, and I, I love when I sent you that text, you like, you know, you know, the old, the old school still got it because people have to, people have to remember, like there's no school, like the fucking old school, pure unadulterated, un- unadulterated, real fucking hardcore wins over time and time again, and again. I just think I mean, we didn't know we didn't know any any better. We we're just trying to do something that was cool and fun. So why fuck it up in like you know with pretense and shit? It's like it's just it's just simple and fucking good and just let's do it. I mean, we've also been l- really lucky. Like um, when you you turned me on to um, Scanlon after we did those shows with him, and you said you know reach out to him, and he's been really great at setting up like old hardcore bands who like broke up and he just waves you know like a little a fucking like fun show carrot and he's just like hey let's go gb this band this band this band and they're just like yeah fuck it let's go let's play so we've been able to play with all these bands that haven't been playing for a while too and that that sets you know that makes the show great for everybody it's just more interesting uh, I, I definitely I, i'm so glad you guys linked up so Thank you once again. My uh, pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your evening and we'll be hanging soon, brother. All right, brother. See you next week. Take care. Thanks, pal. Bye. Again, I hope that you really enjoyed this episode. Please check out the book. If we will have the links up on TIHCpodcast.com. So you can buy this book that he's talking about. It is now up for pre-sale, and I'm telling you, it's just, it's awesome that now in this era where people like Siv are able to go back, find memoirs, and release it, that this, not only people who have always wanted to hear these stories, but newer people are going to be influenced by this little tour book. Summer Tour 1987, A Roadie's Tale by Siv. You can get it. Whether either in America or Germany, it's being sold everywhere. Just check it out. Support Siv. To me, he's the GOAT for so many different reasons. And I hope that you guys enjoyed this. We are going to do another episode. That's a fact. We'll keep it going. Different I mean, shit. We'll end up with three episodes the way me and him talk. So, hope to see you all at This Is Hardcore Fest. Alright? Thank you. Good night.